Hey, hi Connor. How you doing? Hey, hey Max. Uh, I'm just calling out of the blue. You're I'm putting you on the spot. You're our third interview for On the Spot from Squash World. Okay, third time lucky. <laughs> yeah, you are lucky. So actually the first person, Luis Ferrara, he said you'd be a good person to interview. <laughs> I love Luis. Luis, a uh, great friend in Portugal. Yeah, uh, he's, always, always working hard for squash. He's done a lot. So introduce uh, a, a bit, of, bit about yourself, your, your history, your playing history, what you're doing now, where you're living. Sure. Um, before I do that, I, I, I just wanted to thank you and, uh, for all the hard work that you're doing with Squash World and, and uh, all the people in the community. Uh, 16,000 plus and growing. Well done. Yeah, yeah thanks. So congratulations and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm a former PSA squash pro. I uh, played in the, um, in the leagues and the uh, circuit for, for a while, for over 10 years back in the 90s. And um, certified squash uh, coach in Canada. I uh, lived in Toronto for many years, learned my squash there, and then uh, been in Cartagena, Colombia for the last 10 years uh, this coming December. So I've uh, also coached in a few of the Ivy Leagues at, uh, at Princeton uh, University and Dartmouth College in the junior squash programs there. And I started, um, created a online um, mental coaching certification program, which I'm really enjoying right now. Okay, so you've so, got quite a, quite a few people on that? Yeah, we're, uh, we're building it out and, and uh, growing every year and, and we're gonna make sure that people understand how to use uh, that part of the game structure that um, I think a lot of the coaches haven't, haven't been able to, uh, to identify properly. Yeah. So I want to work with the coaches and, and the players. Yeah, I see. I mean, I, I, I've had dealings with players. I, I see they're not really switched onto that. So they go and think they're training harder, but they don't actually train the mental side. They're training yeah, most I mean, and drive and 400 meters or sprints, whatever, but not, not the mental side. Yeah, we have to do the mental. We have to do the mental side and the physical stuff and technical. There's there's four or five different parts of the of of any sport. There's the technical. There's the strategic. There's the physical, um, and then of course there's the mental part, which I think a lot of the world top athletes, uh, besides squash, uh, realize that this is the part of the game that people can um, differentiate themselves. They can take themselves to the next level, and. Um, and really make a difference in, in their own performances and results. If that's, so, if that's your mum, you can answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. not. Okay. No problems. So, I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of players, uh, people laugh at me, like 150 in the world. I say, well, they say, well, what, how high do you think I could go? I said, depends how you put in the work, not just the work you put in. So if you change your attitude just towards your training to start with, noting down things, you're always doing things to perfection. I spent time with, with Greg, he, you know, Gautier, with Lanku. They do things to perfection. They don't just go and hit squash balls and do boast and drive, or, or they didn't anyway. So let, let me compare. So, so there are a lot of people, for example, I, can, I went and swam. I can do 25 meters under underwater, sometimes with difficulty. And one day I did 50. This particular day I was feeling terrible. And, but the pressure went off. So I did the 25 and I thought, hey, maybe I can do more. And I struggled somehow to do 50. I, I don't think I'll be able to do 50 now 
without the mental training, not the physical training. So you get this in where you have world team championships where this guy who's really way down the ranking, he's really digging in for his country and beats a really top ranked player. Now, that is what I call the one-offs and you'll always see it in world championships teams. What would it take for these guys to realize that they can produce that every day or produce well, a higher level every day? Yeah. So what I do in my programs is I, I, I teach coaches basically how, how the mind works. So we want to, we, we want to understand what we have to work with. First of all, it's like choosing a racket or a pair of shoes, right? Yeah. You want to know, the the qualities that are there you want to know how it behaves is it a is it a if it's a racket uh are the strings um flexible you know what's where's the sweet spot is it stiff is it is it um you know what's the strength in, in the head where's the balance weight all that kind of stuff so we want to we want to understand a little bit more about the brain and the mind those are two different things and the different parts of the functioning brain and the parts that you're using a lot of people don't really understand it so uh, that's 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 one of the reasons why I got into it because I realized all the books that are out there for squash, um, they have very little when it comes to the mental coaching and the mental uh, side of the of the game because basically I think most of the coaches were never taught that before it was never available, and um, and really what what I did was uh, I have a mentor that I I work with for my business um, for one of my businesses and and uh, I basically just flip that over and, and adapted it to squash. So going back to your question, um, what, we, what we do is we, we train mainly the subconscious versus the conscious brain because we realize that uh, this is the part of the brain that makes the majority of the decisions. So we live out our entire day um, basically on, on a program that's running in the background. So Subconscious mind is, is making 95% of our decisions, um, sometimes up to 98%. And we're doing those automatically. And once we learn how to control or uh, decide what the subconscious will decide for us, and uh, reprogramming our brain is, is, is basically the, the major, the major uh, task. And I think once players learn how to do that, um, then, you know, in, in squash, I mean, we don't have any time to really uh, react or think. A lot of coaches go on the court and, and, um, with their players and tell them to think a lot. The problem with that is the thinking part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, the neocortex, uh, is too slow. It works at about 40 bits of um, uh, data per minute. And uh, when, we, when, we're, when we're in a game situation, we have to react much, much faster. Subconscious is, is, is working 400, 500 times faster than that. So we really are just reacting and we have to use the part of the brain that's faster. Okay. Simple as that. I have a question from uh, Basil in uh, Stratford-Blonhaven. He wants to know if it's the same for women as for men. <laughs> yes, <it's, laughs> apparently, I think we have the same brain structure. Right. But the... Um, the human body is basically 99%, you know, we are all the same, basically. Right. The DNA uh, that we're born with, uh, every, every human being on the planet is, is basically the same. So, which means that anyone can learn this. 
and anyone can uh, can can perform at, at a higher level uh, you just have to make some adjustments and some commitment right so back away from the mental side so I, i'm seeing i've worked a bit with kids from different countries i've seen the kids obviously from certain countries where they're throwing balls playing with sticks they're far more likely to learn the skills than kids with iphones and ipads and whatever these games are called you know that they have at home is that true are they far more, more likely to learn what they learn skills like out there that the, the, the other kids do not have they're slower to develop because of this this is what uh, sarah from essex is asking me yeah well you know when you're outside i think there's there's a lot there's a lot more going on you're exercising uh, a lot more awareness so we have like four different levels of awareness i, I might i'll get into that maybe a little bit later but when you're outside versus inside, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the human the human being right now, the, uh, the, the, the modern man, let's say, has been around on the planet for about 2.5 million years, okay? And, and uh, we've grown and, and developed in a totally different environment than what, what we're in now. The environment that we live in now is very recent. The problem is our brains haven't really um, adjusted as fast as our environment. Yeah. So we're we're mentally we're stuck in it, stuck in the past, and and our surroundings have evolved around us. So yeah, it could be that a lot of a lot of the kids that that are outside are learning basically how how humans have learned, you know, for generations and and for millennia. So the kids that are inside aren't aren't exposing those, those, uh, those functions, those awareness patterns that, um, that, kids are, that kids are used to um, or should be using. So this is, uh, I mean, I don't believe all Egyptian kids are out playing uh, in, in the parks or things like this. They also have telephones and mobile phones, but they have so much motivation amongst them. That's another tool now. I don't believe the English players, Australia, the main players before have the same environment that they had before this it's not set up professionally like in in egypt what, what do you think yeah so uh, you know a lot of people have asked the question about why that why the egyptians are 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 so much further ahead seemingly than than any other country and you know there's there's three main um associated factors basically that that we have to think about okay um and how how we start that process is exactly what happened uh, to the Pakistanis and the Australians years ago and, and, and the British as well. So right now, the Egyptians are further ahead because of, um, of three, di three different areas of their lives, right? One is, okay, what they put into their minds. Okay, so what you put into your minds, you get out, garbage in, garbage out, okay? So if you're talking about iPhones and iPads and, and video games and that kind of stuff, the more negative stuff or the more things that don't move you towards your goal, okay, the, the less chance of, a, uh, of that happening. The second part of that, uh, that question is, um, is you are basically uh, the sum of the five people that you hang around with the most and you spend the most time with the most. So if you have top coaches um, encouraging you all the time and people around you uh, your parents and so forth encouraging all the time then that has an, an effect uh, 
when the British took the game of squash to Pakistan, uh, the Pakistani kids like Hashim Khan used to run around uh, picking balls up from outside of the court because they didn't have a back wall in some of the courts. And um, so they used to hang around uh, those, those, those kids and, and, and the, the British officers. And they were, they were probably coached and, and probably wanted to get on the court. And, and uh, so they were looking at those, at those guys as, uh, as inspiration, which is happening in Egypt. You got all that inspiration, all the coaches, that some of them were world top players, some of them were world champions. Um, and so that they've just kept that bond together. So you've got that nucleus that's, that the kids are feeding off of. The third, the third part of that process is your environment. So what kind of environment are you, are you um, spending most of your time in? Is it an environment that fosters uh, positivity in, in the squash environment? Um, do your parents help you out? Uh, do, the, do your friends uh, that you hang out with, do they, do they encourage you? Um, you know, uh, or are you hanging out in the park and, or on, on, you know, on your couch watching television playing video games? So whatever environment you, you surround yourself with, um, you know, that reminds me of a, a really funny, it's an older movie called Trading Places with um, Eddie Murphy. And um, to get who the other, the other uh, actor was, but it, it was all about one guy trading places with another guy that was in the, in the stock market, very wealthy. And once they, once they switch places, Eddie Murphy plays a bum off the street. And once they switch places, um, they were easily uh, conformed into the life, lifestyle of the other person. Uh, so those are the three main factors, I think, why Egypt is so far ahead. They've got those three components um, that are consistently uh, being exposed to the kids. So I'm going to ask you a, a difficult one here. So America, sure. they're throwing money, I say throwing money, to get kids to get to university. Um, to me, that's not creating the environment. It's not going to create champions. The ones that I think are coming, coming from families who already play squash, it's coming from outside the system. For the money that's been thrown into American squash, I don't think the level is very high. I don't see it getting higher. Um, they did well a couple of years ago at the British Open, the juniors, but I think I could see them falling off. I don't think the motivation to actually play squash is there. What do you think of that statement? Yeah, so I, I have a little bit of inside knowledge on, on the U.S. scene um, from my coaching down there. And, and, and basically, the, the parents put their kids into universities for, for education. And they, their focus is really a short-term uh, process. It's not something that they aspire to uh, as a livelihood in most cases. Um, but we are seeing some results, for example, uh, Amanda Sobey and uh, some, of, you know, some of the kids um, that are going through the university program. That, that's yes, the girls. It, that's the girls. So, that's, uh, that's, that's the girls. No guys. No, no guys. Yeah, because like I said, the main objective of the parents is to get their, get their kids into a, a very good school and, and squash is allowing them to do that. But past the four years or five years or whatever uh, program they decide to take, there's no real long-term uh, goal that, that the parents have any expectations of them um, going after. So they get to the university, 
they do well. Um, but after that, uh, it's basically they, they expect them to go into into uh, Wall Street or, or or the family business or some other other traditional job. So right? so we get back to the five most important people around you. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> and the universities they don't really uh, I don't think push the kids to 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 go professional. Um, so that you know. In the states, it's it's a whole different story. The the the, uh, the parents have a different expectation. They're, they're bringing in um, coaches from all over the world to to up the game, but it's just for the short period. It's not a long term uh, right. thing like like it is in Egypt. I mean, the Egyptians, um, some of the Pakistani and Australian players when they came out, uh, it was a commitment. It was a long term commitment. It was a commitment to to earn a living, and that's what they were going to do. So it was make or break. I mean, they had to, they had to get good at it or basically they wouldn't survive. I'm, I'm going to ask you another horrible question. I'll say it they're comes all, from, they're all good question. <laughs> it comes from Maud in Paris. That's not from me. Okay. So in our time, we were roughly around the same time. I think uh, when we were playing squash to me around that time, the only true hundred percent professionals, there were two of them. Jahinga Khan and Janja Khan, they were 100% when they were playing and training. Others were partying or training wrong, maybe. Um, nowadays, the rivality goes down. The number one can be beaten by number 30. That just didn't happen in our days. Um, because those two guys, you, you have some background on Jahinga more than Janja, I think. But those guys were 100% and their environment around them was 100%. You didn't see them going and get pissed or having joints or going to hedonism in Jamaica. That's a, a, a place to go. Um, they were very serious about their squash, the other guys, but they weren't 100% like Jahanga uh, and Jansha. So what, what would you say to that? Well, what, what's what's the main question? The question is uh, that the other guys were not as professional as Jahinga and uh, Jansha. They weren't a hundred, hundred, hundred percent in all the time. Right. Well, um, part of it has to do with religion, mm -hmm. um, because they were they were pretty serious uh, Muslims, and uh, so they never party, they never drank, they never did all those things. Um, the other part of the squash community were more social, and uh, that's the majority of, of, of the athletes. And I think that was that had a big part of it. Um, even though all the guys were, were playing uh, week to week, month to month, and making a living from it, yeah, they, they, were, they were more serious, and, and that's why they dominated. I mean, if you're committed to, to a sport, any sport, whether you're professional or amateur, um, the more commitment that you that you have, uh, the less distractions you're going to have. It's an equation, right? So any any coach, um, any good coach will will be the, the coach that that shows the path, but also shows the distractions. So you want to be able to go down the path without much friction. And if you have that friction, then it's a distraction. If it's a distraction, then you can't focus really on going down that path. And getting to your goal um, as successfully or consistently, um, if you if you did not have the 
those those uh, interferences or or distractions. And I think well, I, when I I won the Canadian Junior Championships and and uh, Unsquatchable at the time in Canada sponsored me, so I was very fortunate to to get on the inside um, track and spent uh, my first five months in London with with Jahangir and Ramat. Um, <clears throat> And it was a, it was a very different culture. They got up early in the morning, uh, did a ten mile run, they did uh, sprints, they did skipping for an hour, uh, they did uh, weights for an hour. Not very much. They did a lot of on court stuff in the morning, and then drills in the in the morning, and then uh, condition games and matches in the afternoon. And then they did uh, an hour worth of swimming. Jahangir couldn't swim that well, but um, he put it. He put the effort in and did the work, yeah. right? And that was a full day's work. So like you said, these guys were treating this as a business, as a, as a job. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so they, had, they spent a full day at it, just like anyone would do uh, at any professional job. And so, again, they, I mean, the advantage for Johinka, I'm not taking anything away from him, uh, like uh, a legend. I had a little bit of training, like three months training, five months training with a Pakistani trader. So I know what the tra their training was like <laughs> those days. But he had, I mean, all the Australians, when they came on tour, they came as a pack, mostly. And they didn't come with their coach. Right. Jahinga had Ramat <clears throat> behind him, who kept him serious the whole time. Um, which is, once again, you're talking about environment. So if you send players abroad without their coach, they're going to have to be... Even Jahinga, if you sent him without Ramat, it's, it wouldn't have been the same without Ramat. Do you, do you agree? I, I completely agree. And a lot of, a lot of um, human beings in general, in any kind of sport, get complacent. So, and this actually did happen to Jahangir. I don't, don't, don't remember, um, know if you remember the time that, uh, uh, I think the first time in his five-year run streak that he lost to Ross Norman in, in Toulouse in, in uh, World Open was the year that, that, that he and Jahangir didn't work. Uh, consistently yeah. and I, I don't know exactly the situation I'm not going to really get into it but um, once once you have a system that works and you relinquish that system right yeah. there's a yeah. chink in the there's a chink in the chain yeah. uh, kink in the chain so so he lost and then he got back together with with Ramit and then he was able to to uh, continue to to um, to run out his 10, 10 British Opens. But yeah, anytime, and that's human nature as well. Sometimes people get to the stage where, yeah, I, don't, I think I don't, I don't need that person. I know everything yeah. there is to know. And then what you don't realize is that one of the main ingredients of your success was having somebody that you're accountable for. And that's what coaches, that's what coaches do. And you have to be accountable to that, accountable to that person. Um, and they keep you in line. Right. So if you're getting out of track, if you if you if you're going off off uh, course, um, you know one of the one of the visualization tools that I use is is uh, if you think of a of an airline uh, of a of a um, of a plane going from point A to point B, right? Ninety nine percent of the time that plane is off track. Why? Because there's wind going this way. There's air pressures going up and down. There's, there could be birds flying around. And so every time you have to readjust and, and uh, every time you readjust, um, 
you get back on track. But if you don't have something to guide you, whether it's an automatic pilot, whether it's, it's your coach, your mental coach, whoever it is, your parents, um, you've got to have that, uh, you've got to have something else out there that's looking out for you to say, hey, you're not going down the path that you promised, then that's, that's going to be a, that's going to be a problem. The other thing that, that Jahangir had also was, um, you know, his story is, is very interesting is that, uh, and his, his brother had died. And so one of his promises to himself and his family was that within two years, he would, he would uh, win the world squash championships and then take it back to, to, uh, to, to Torsum, his, his, his brother. So that was, that, there was a deep reason why he, he was compelled to be committed. Um, and, that's, and that's one of the things that, that he has that, you know, great, if, if you've got a great reason that, that's, um, that's a, a very strong purpose, that's a very good motivation because once you get into the training and all the other, all the other activities and the day-to-day -day, uh, grueling activities that could be boring to others, um, like traveling and packing and um, time zones and, and getting tired and frustrated injuries and this and that, it can put you off. But if you're committed and you have a purpose, then you've got a very strong reason. And that's, the, that's really one of the only things that we figured out that keeps people going when everything else is, uh, everyone else might quit, right? So I think. Um, and about uh, Jansha, I mean, I, we don't know much about Jansha. He wasn't particularly liked. I found him very funny, to be honest. Uh, some of his comments, and he was a bit different, but also at the time, they weren't, weren't particularly kind to Pakistani, shall we say, on the tour. Um, what was his, coaching relationship like his coach did he follow him around the tour was he on his own what, what was his story uh, yeah i don't i don't much know much about jancha because he he came on the tour a little bit after i did it although i did see him play jahangir in, in amsterdam in the world championships and I, I remember the first rally lasted about four and a half minutes or something uh, ridiculous he he had a different motivation and i think his motivation was to to, uh, to maintain uh, the Khan dynasty. So one of the things that we've learned in, in neuroscience is that expectation is a very big, uh, big, big thing. And so once, um, once a student, whether it's a professional athlete or any kind of athlete, or even a, a regular student in the school, um, has an expectation from parent, coach, association, foundation, sponsors. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of pressure there. Um, it's kind of subdued. It's a little bit under the radar. It's not, you know, you've got to do this or, or that's the end of it. Um, but then when you're, when you're held accountable to other people, then there's usually a, a little bit in, uh, more of an internal um, commitment from yourself to get, to get the results that, that you're looking for because you, you want to make, um, think about just your, you know, parents in general, you want to make them proud of, of your accomplishments, right? So uh, that sort of emotion um, gets transferred in, into, uh, into play. And I think this is what happened with, with, with Jansher. And uh, he was able to, to maintain that because uh, they wanted to keep, whether 
Jahangir was going to lose at some uh, point in time. They wanted to keep the, the winning streak in, in Pakistan. Yeah. So basically, that's what's happening in Egypt right now. So, um, you know, we, we had a few top players years ago, uh, Ahmed Barada, and, um, and, and then they just started coming out from there. And, and now it's just, okay, um, Rami came along, and, and now there's Mohammed. And now there's Ali. Um, so whoever is going to be next is, uh, you know, they want to keep it in Egypt. If somebody's going to win it and continue to sort of pass the baton, as it were, yeah. uh, they want to keep it uh, there. Well, I think it's going to stay there for a little while, at least. It might. So, <laughs> it might. It might. So the, uh, the other question is, um, one of the things I really liked about Jahinga was Ramit, because Ramit was an astute businessman. And basically, he's a manager. So without Ramit, I don't think Jahangir would have earned as much. I don't think he'd have gone as far as he did, lasted as long as he did, not taking anything at all away from, from Jahangir. And yet we see, up until this day, the majority of top players don't have managers. They, they, they're running off doing camps. They're saying they're master trainers, except for the top three, all Egyptians. They're not doing this. When will squash become more professional? It's catch twenty-two. If they if they're readily available, then you know the price is going to be cheaper, so you don't want them as much, so you don't respect them as much. When will they say no? We're not going to play as many leagues. We're going to wait for the big sponsorship deal, or we're going to go and get it, or get a manager. What's stopping these guys? Yeah, let's um, let's go back to your original comment. So, yeah, Ramat did travel around with Jahangir. He was also his, his cousin and mentor, his business uh, manager. <clears throat> and, and um, you know, when I first went over to, to, to England, you know, one of the things he said right away was, you know, don't worry about the money, don't worry about traveling expenses, don't worry about any of the, that sponsorship and that sort of stuff. You concentrate just on your squash, right? So right away, um, you have you have to make that decision. A lot of players think that they can't have both. They can't have a manager or a coach um, helping them out. And it, I think a lot of it actually comes from something we 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 call a lack mentality. Okay, you don't want to share your earnings with someone. Um, Jahangir and I we 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 signed a contract with Raman. We had to give a certain amount of a percentage of our earnings to uh, whether it was an exhibition or a tournament or whatever it was. But the truth was, in the end, we made more money, yeah. right? Um, you know, I can't reveal all the money that, that Jahangir made, but he did really well. I, I would go as far as saying he was probably the first squash millionaire. And there have been other, other athletes, uh, other squash players that have probably made that or more um, over, this, over the span of their, of their career. And so the, the smarter ones, right? The smarter ones, yeah. yeah. Because once, it, and, and you could probably figure out who those were because those were the ones that were, were traveling around with their, with their coaches. And so if you think about it, um, any, any kind of uh, top professional athletes these days, they're going to have a manager. Why? One is um, it's much easier for someone to go to negotiate on your behalf. And secondly, uh, when you have to focus on your sport or your profession, 
um, it takes your mind away from, from all those other things. But when, when you have that person acting on your behalf, even though you're going to be giving them a commission of some sort, right? People don't, people don't look at the long-term gain. They look at the short-term loss. And, and, that's, and that's where I think, unfortunately, most professional athletes uh, in squash uh, have, have uh, failed, if so. But if they're happy with that, if they think that's what they're worth, then that's what they're worth. That's another mindset yeah. to, to instill. They, they, they need to understand that um, you know, you're going to get paid what you're worth. And if that's what you believe that you're worth, then, then that's what people are going to, to offer you. But if you if you think a different way, then sky's the limit. Yeah, I, I think some of it is. Uh, I mean, historically, the top guys obviously have taken the lion's share of the prize money. That's obvious. To my uh, way of seeing it, there's a certain amount of matches you play in a year, like a boxer certain number of fights now if these guys are running off doing camps uh playing dutch league french league english league etc etc to me they're not professional they're not professional squash players it's only when they're on the tour and they're going for that number one spot one thousand percent to to me the top ones that's when they're 100 percent professional squash players and a lot of them will say, well, they'd only be able to make money doing this. But I, I think some, a lot of cases, they, they devalue themselves. And also, they stop the up-and-coming players from also having an income. Their value goes down because they're more available. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I, I think there's... I'm not too familiar with the European circuit for the, uh, for the leagues, but from my understanding is that, you know, you want to... You, the owners of those leagues or the teams, uh, they, they sponsor the teams to get to, well, could be for several reasons, but one of the reasons is to get um, their membership out to, to support the events. And of course, they, they want to see good squash. Um, why not get a top professional to, to come into your club if, if you can sign them up for, for a season and, and get them in there once a month or whatever the schedule is? Um, but yeah, it's, I, I understand. I understand where you're coming from, and, and uh, you know that's that's um, every league. Every league works that way. I think again, if the top players are looking to play leagues to make an extra income, as long as it doesn't interfere with their uh, with their PSA schedule, then then um, that's that's obviously their decision. But I hear I hear what you're saying. Is it's taking away work from from the up and coming players giving them uh, not, not too much of a chance to, to earn their uh, it's also it's it's limiting their progress so the, the way it works in uh, in europe is imagine you're david beckham and you play well he doesn't play anymore but he's a legend he played for psg imagine he's playing for manchester united as well because it's in the english league and he's playing for eindhoven in the dutch league that's how it works in, in europe you can play in any league Right. Um, which kind of makes a mockery of professionalism that you, in, my, in my mind that you can actually do that. Um, de- once again, it devalues them. It makes it so you might qualify for the, your team might qualify for the European team championships, but one of your players plays for three, 
three of three of the teams that's qualified. So to me, it's not professional. The English league has done well because the uh, PSL because they charge people to watch it, and there's lots of people who come to watch the matches, and it's quite a high high level. The French league, for example, which I've I've lived in France, I've played played there many years. You might get Nicolas Muller. I've seen Nicolas Muller play uh, Greg Gauthier with nobody, nobody, nobody watching. Um, to me, that's making a mockery of the sport. That's not necessarily their 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 fault, of course, but they're sort of, they're part of the circus. They're part of the circus. Yeah, it's it's but it's, it's it falls onto the promoter's um, lap yeah. uh, when it comes when it comes to turnout. So. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a hard it's a hard question to answer fully because there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. But uh, if 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 uh, people are going to develop a um, professional uh, league, uh, then yeah, I mean it, it doesn't matter who you are. You're still going to want you're still going to want um, people to come out there and support you. This and this is still happening in the top PSA tournaments. There's there's a lot of tournaments that that are happening in you know it's it's been well voiced in in all the forums that uh that half the seats are empty or big yeah. big batches of the of the um opening rounds are empty and nobody ever shows up until the semifinals or or, or finals of any of these big events um <clears throat> yeah it's 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 um it's a subject i think that i think it's not it's not going to change until until squash becomes uh more of a streamline and more participation um, so we don't and, and to do that we need statistics to, to sell to the sponsors and we don't have any statistics we don't have the numbers the, the 20 million people that are supposed to be playing squash um, that number's been around I think since I was a junior so it's, I, you know, I saw 25 million the other day so <laughs> someone put 25 million so we'll see I I we don't know. This is the problem, right? We don't yeah. know if it's 25 million, 20 million, or 15 million. We don't know how many courts are in each country. We don't know how many um, people are playing in, in these leagues. Um, it's even hard to, to, to understand, you know, how many people are playing in the PSA unless, unless you check all of the records. And uh, these are things that we need to, to sell to the, to, the, um, to the sponsors. We don't have the numbers like any business, you know, we're never going to get there. We're going to stay stagnant. Um, although the squash, and, we, and we've had this debate on, on squash world already, but the numbers of, um, uh, of professional tournaments and, and, uh, and uh, prize money uh, is, is growing a little bit, but it's, it's not growing like to the point where we can, where we can say, yeah, that, that, that's a big, it's a big jump and yeah. it's incremental and it's uh it's it's taken a long time to get to where we are Whereas, i think we're becoming so dependent on very big sponsors for some tournaments and that once again that's feeding the top guys lower down there's a big big problem so you have the waller family put a million dollars in egypt put lots of money in uh, Nantes has done a very good job. Zurich, unfortunately, was cancelled this year, but they've done good jobs in bringing money in. But further down, there's there's a lack of tournaments for the middle to lower ranked players. 
Yeah, so again, most of the sponsors were, you know, I've sponsored squash tournaments and, and uh, you don't really, you don't really do it to get your money back or to, or to make any money out. Some of these um, bigger sponsors use it, use it as a tax write-off and, uh, and that's, a, that's a good business move if you're making that kind of money. But it, you know, if you're sponsoring a squash tournament with your own money, it's a little bit different because you're expecting some kind of a return, some mention, some other business that can balance that out. But, uh, but, but yeah, that, again, it doesn't matter. Those lower level players, unless we get the numbers right, yeah. then this is a, this is a business uh, uh, game. And, and uh, if we want more sponsors, we really need to get our numbers in place. So uh, in, in Europe, I don't know how it is in your, your part of the world. We have in some countries, in Switzerland, in France, we have a community, squash community, that only loves their squash. Doesn't come along and support. I've run events, uh, I put money in, I'm like a thousand dollars. It's not the end of the world, but it's still my money. I put money into events to be literally the only person watching because I was refereeing the final. <laughs> The committee member didn't turn up. The president didn't turn up. Why? Because I asked people to put up $20 each. I got money back from uh, participation because when you pay a small PSA events, uh, satellites, the participants play. But time and time again, the local squash community, there's nothing done. We had a community before in the past, as you know, where people would actually support an event. To run an event and in another club, uh five people watching you know and right. nobody take i've taken greg to iceland to do to run a camp with six people with three coaches and yet they had 12 committee members um we've lost the somewhere along the line we've lost and that comes from promotion that does that's not the players fault, obviously i i, I the lower rank players uh, i love I love them coming to the club. I love the effort they put in. Um, and I'm getting in juniors for this. Juniors come and play, can play in these events. I've got 12 year olds playing a, a ranked PSA player who are, they're absolutely lovely with the juniors. But the, the presidents of the club, the committee members, the team members, silch, nobody. Um, I don't know what the community spirit for is in, in, in your area, in uh, America, South America. But we saw also the Waller tournament where there was a disgustingly low amount of people. Um, what's going on? What, what do we have to do to get people to come and, and watch the squash? Well, it's not, it's not to watch. And uh, see, that's, I think that's the big problem. But we, yeah. but we had people before watching it. it was yes. Small. It, yeah, it, it was. It wasn't so interesting to watch in my mind. To, to, I don't wish to cause any offence to people who like the wooden rackets, but uh, it, it to me it wasn't the same game. It's more interesting to watch now. But then we had a community which got behind the squash, which would pay money. Uh, now we seem to have a tight-fisted community. It only thinks of their game. They're not passionate about the game of squash, but they're passionate about their game. How do we yeah, change so, that? So one of the things with human behavior is that we like things that are novel. Okay, when squash first came out, it was novel. It was a new thing. 
and then it became supposedly elitist and and that was a new thing so people gravitated to that because they wanted to mix with some of the elite people in their community and then it and then it got to the stage where it was being squash courts were being made in in hotels and apartments and ymcas and more public and so it became a little bit more public let's say so i think one of the things um i know in my experience with with the uh, the tournaments in colombia for example uh, they hold national tournaments every uh, every month or every six every six weeks or so and basically everyone has to come out it's it's uh, it's a mandatory event and you get your ranking points based on that then i remember the best tournaments in canada that we ever had were team events those were always the most fun for me to participate in um, whether it was uh, representing your your province, your your city, your your club, um, or we had this great tournament that uh, Jeff Sneed used to run in in Ottawa, which was um, which was a theme event. So every you know the party on Saturday night it was a, was a dress it was a dress thing. It was like Halloween, right? <laughs> so we had we had to bring our costumes and we had to play. Um, you know, one year we had cowboys and Indians. The next year we had uh, Disney characters. Um, but the but the fun of the fun of thing the fun thing about it really was that we were getting people involved. So um, you know, there's there's some good books on on stuff like that, and and uh, and getting people interested in something, you have to ha allow them to participate in in it yeah. somehow. So the trick is is not how to get them out there. People want to come, but they also want to participate. And if you get them participating in some factor, um, whether it's volunteering, um, you know, whether it's playing the pros, whether it's organizing, whether it's hosting the pros, um, whether it's, uh, you know, assigning a whole committee or a whole bunch of volunteers to people who are, are, are going to be active in, 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 the, in the game somehow. Because it's human nature again, you know. This is a, this is a, a visceral game. We we, we want to be involved in it um, at some level, not just watching it and uh, from from afar. And, and there'll be some people that want to just do that. Yeah. Um, but in general, you get them involved somehow. You make them allow them to participate, and uh, and and they'll see it grow. Right. I've, I have had success when I've, I've run camps at, at the same time. So, and also the, the PSA players, uh, I, I asked them before, I said, look, I'm, I'm running this event. It's a small event. They're happy to have these events. And a lot of them will actually help out and they, they will go and play a junior for 10 minutes. Uh, one guy, a Scottish guy, a really nice guy, he won the last event. Uh, he came back, he played one of my juniors. And asked my junior how it was, and he said it was four zero. <laughs> so what, what do you mean four zero? Because you know sometimes these kids they still uh, play a warm up point to decide who ser who serves. <laughs> so, right. So I said, what do you mean four zero? Well, uh, he he beat me three love, and then he asked me what I was unhappy about with my game, and I told him, and he said, well, let's go and have another game then. So that's the sort of kindness we get from the, the lower ranked players, also the higher ranked players as well. But getting them involved, but 
asking team local team guys in my area to get their hands in their pocket and and put twenty dollars to play these PSA players unthinkable here unthinkable so with me it's all in getting new clients in the old clients so you can, you can put them in coffins they're, they're worthless you know um, on the team scales in, in this area in this area so I mean one of the reasons why I started uh, we started squash was to get to know people like you, Luis, uh, other people in different countries, just to say, hey, we can get these things going again. It's just your, in your area, it'd be totally different to my area. If I try and run it my way in your area, it probably wouldn't work. I don't, I don't know your area. So to, just to wrap off, the, we've gone off track now, to come back to you and your mental training side, can you give me a sport that uses the mental training most and is most effective where you need the mental training. Obviously you need it for every sport that's not accepted in squash to a big degree. Can you tell anyone here that the sports where it's so important to have mental training, where they well, win because of the mental side? Yeah, well, the truth is you win in every sport based okay. on the mental side. Give me, give me one, give me one, give me one. Who you Golf. Really... Okay. Golf. Okay. okay. So very technical, of course, um, but golf is, is extremely mental because it's one of the sports where you've got a lot of time. There's no pressure seemingly where you have to uh, hit, you know, hit the ball, hit, hit the drive, hit the putt. Um, and, uh, and also there's no barriers. Whereas in squash, we have, we have the four glass walls in a, on a golf course. You know, you've got hundreds and hundreds of people and millions of people watching on television, uh, and there's no barriers. You can, I mean, you can hear people breathing <laughs> when yeah. you're when you go. But um, you know, there's there's part of my part of my course. Uh, we we uh, we let people not just watch movies and videos and 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 um, and interesting clips, but we make them study these things and pick out information that's that's very relevant to exactly questions like that. So, for example, um, there there was a, uh, a a movie a few years ago called Race, the Jesse Owens story. Okay, and and one of one of the scenes in that in that I won't tell you which scene, but one of the scenes really uh, forces you to learn how to block out all the extra noise, all the distractions that that's there. Um, running, for example, okay, hundred meter dash, okay, Usain Bolt, all these top runners, you know, they've done studies with these runners where they they've put um, mind mapping um, uh, sensors on all these athletes and ask them to mentally run the race in their heads right and then they put them on the track and they time them for both and they're pretty much all both identical right squash is no different and and the cool thing about what i teach is it's transferable to all sorts of different areas of your life if you, you know if you've got kids that are playing um, squash they can use this sort of information to use for their schooling um, use for relationships all that sort of stuff 
and squat, squash is no different. You, you practice in your mind and, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a level of, of, of mental awareness where, um, you basically know if you're going to win before you step onto the court because you've already rehearsed it in your mind. So I do something that I call a, uh, it's, it's a blanket visualization, um, practice and you basically visualize the win right and what would happen during that win so obviously if you won a tournament or a match or whatever it is an event then everything before that had to have fallen in place yeah. right so for example when miguel won the the british open um, 2018, right? He had visualized it so powerfully and, you know, we gave him a lot of tools to use. Of course, he had to do all of the, all of the hard work. He had to do the training. He had to do the fitness. His, his dad was there. His, his dad's a coach in, in Colombia, um, squash coach. His mom is a fitness uh, um, fanatic. She's <laughs> at her age. She's, I mean, she's amazing at what she does, but, and he had to go through that, but he also had to, see all of the steps, do all of the physical, technical, strategic, um, and mental preparation. But in his mind, he had already won. And, and if, you watch, if you watch the match again, I mean, Mohammed was, I think, peeling over like, in, I think in the second or, second or, third, second yeah. or third game. And he, was, he was spent. It didn't matter what the circumstances were, whether someone was injured or sick or whatever, um, Miguel was sick as well that week. He said he, he, he admitted it himself. He had funny feelings. We talked about it during the week. Um, but he had already decided, right, months before that event, what his visualization tools were, what he had decided to do. And he had won, um, he, he basically beat the whole, the whole Egyptian team that week, right? Rami, Ali. Mohammed, um, and uh, and so if you do it properly, consistently, right, and do all the other hard work, all the physical stuff, strategic stuff, um, it all falls into place. So if you get to that point where you can visualize properly the end result, right, then everything else besides you know, before it would have had to have fallen in place. You know, this this one of the examples that I use with with Miguel and, and my students before is is a, one of the one of the golfers. Um, the, the green jacket is is the prize for the for, for one of the big golf tournaments in the states called the Masters. Okay, and that's that's kind of like the um, it's it's uh, it's the it's part of the trophy, right? It's it's a thing that you get, and only the top players will get it um once once they win the tournament so one of the one of the uh, golfers that won this thing when he was in college right when he was in university he used to have his friend practice putting on a green jacket on him every sunday for four years basically yeah. right so every week he went through this emotion feeling how this thing felt wearing this green jacket and within a few years after turning pro, um, he manifested it. it, 
it worked because in his mind he had already he had already seen it come to life. So once he felt it, he realized, okay, what are the things that I have to do? Yeah. What are the what what kind of lessons do I have to take? What knowledge do I have to learn? What kind of fitness do I need? And everything fell in place because he had already prepared his mind ahead of time. You see, he's he's going he's going for the final goal. So I mean, I've, I've dealt with some players, and they're not accepting the first goal, which is targets. When I say targets, I don't mean winning a championship. Mild, I mean, hitting a ball in a hitting a ball, yeah, milestone. Hitting a ball in the same spot twenty times instead of doing just post and drive, you have a stamp down on the floor, things like this, noting down your times. So some players will say, oh, I went out and trained really hard. So what did you do? And they can't tell you what they did. Yeah, but right. I was sick at the end. That's a bit, but you don't necessarily have to be sick at the end. You know, some people right. think that the harder the training, the more likely you get, you're going to get there. Like I said to, I don't know if I said to you once, it's like taking medicine. If you don't take the right dose, either you're going to get very sick or you're not going to get better. Right. You have well, to do things I, in the right baking baking cake. If you put the or the food in the wrong order, it doesn't work. So actually, being able to accept that you're going to be the best, you're going to win, is this green jacket. Taking yeah. that decision. Well, that's 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 a, that's another yeah. that's another tool that you can use. Is yeah. And lots and lots of players. Sorry, lots of players say, "I want to get to the top hundred. I want to be number one." And it's okay, well, get a pen and paper, write down all the things you have to do. And yeah, go it's, away got, from it's, it. <laughs> it's got to be, be measurable. And yeah. that's, I think that's what you're getting at. You, yeah. have, you, have, you have to write down uh, everything that you do, yeah. everything that you eat, everything that you drink, uh, the amount of rest that you, that you have every day, um, the quality of your training. You know, and then you, can, then you can go back and you can say, ah, oh, yeah, I remember when I was training I, and, and uh, one summer and I had, a, I had some hamburgers and fries the next day I couldn't run. <laughs> I couldn't Surprise, run. Surprising. <laughs> right? But then I knew, hey, this is, I could see it. I had it, I had written it, I had written it down. So yeah. I could track those things and then you can correct them. Right? These are the, these are the tools that, uh, that we use. And writing it down is another very important thing. If you don't write it down, it's not going to happen. Can you yeah. imagine building a, a, a skyscraper or, or the Alberge or one of those big uh, monstrosities without having anything written down? <laughs> be such a, it'd be a waste of time. It'd be dangerous, and um, it would never, it would never happen, right? It'd never be completed. So, but sorry. I think, I think, I think. Sorry, going back. I think one of the other points you you were very uh, strong in pointing out is that a lot of players. Um, they don't have the self-confidence to, to accept that they are actually that good. No. Something's told them they want to get to number one, but they're not committed to, to doing the work. And that's because deep in their subconscious, um, they're saying they can do it, but their inner mind is, is saying one thing, it's not lining up with their actions. So they're not, they're not aligned with their inner, inner thoughts and their, and their outer actions. And so if they don't believe it themselves, then they're not going to do it, right? So there's a sure. lot of self self confidence that has to be uh, 
once again, is it comes down to environment. When you're like that, you have to then make the right decision about who's going to be in your environment. Otherwise, you stay like that. So yeah, gotta, if you if you, you haven't got right say I'm not I haven't got any money, I'm not going to have a coach, or I'm going to choose this guy because he's free. You're not going to get there unless the guy is really really good. Of course, <laughs> you're lucky. Um, so a lot of them, it's you know if you if you have a business, you have to invest into your business. It's, it's, some people don't want to invest so they're, they're running along yeah they're running on the hamster yeah the hamster wheel i mean squash is a business if you're going to be a professional you've got to treat it like a business you've got to think about it as a business um you've got to get your right team in place you've got to be consistent um you've got to know your numbers uh, and, and then you've got to let the people do the job that they are hired to do or that they're experts at and let them do their job and then you, know, you just you just concentrate on what you have to do which is play good squash so so i'm going to ask you a question so this is for we have to wrap up soon you said 20 minutes normally for a meeting we've gone for an hour but <laughs> <laughs> it's nice talking to you so someone who wants to be there but doesn't have the confidence to to get there what a book what book would you suggest he reads or she reads to make themselves believe in themselves. How do you transition from not believing in yourself to believing in yourself? That's the question I'm asking. And how could what what book would you advise for that? Yeah, well, there's not just it's not just one one book that's that's going to get you there. When you're talking about self confidence, um, belief, and all those sort of things, is it's a it all depends on the person, right. right? And it all depends on whether they have a strong enough purpose, yeah. strong enough why we call it, right? And uh, whether they can put all those pieces together, the team, their environment, right? Belief is, a, is, is, a, is, a, is an interesting thing because most of what we believe actually comes within the first seven or eight years of our lives. So for me to answer that question, it'd be a different book for different people, depending okay. on okay. what their experience was. Okay. I'll ask, I'll ask you uh, another question uh, then. Sorry, sorry to butt in. But, but, but if you want, if you want to get a, if you wanted to get a book to learn about that sort of stuff, then I, I would probably recommend think and grow rich. Think and grow rich touches on all the points I've spoken about. And it's probably the number one um, book responsible for the most uh, successful people in the world, even to this day. Okay. And it was it was written. And your uh, biggest oh, motivator, or your hero, uh, and your biggest motivator book, book for motivation. For motivation. Yeah, anyone. So hero, Gandhi, uh, whatever, Martin Luther King, whatever, whoever. Who is your your hero? Uh, I I have a lot of heroes. Um, the the thing is, is motiv motivation by itself is very short lived, and so that that's what we were talking about earlier. If, if right. you don't have that purpose, then motivation factor in your brain, actually the willpower, doesn't work. It's it's a temporary thing. But um, I would have to say like one of my heroes, probably Einstein. Okay. Right. So, I mean, 
he he was thinking outside the box. He was way ahead of his time. Um, Elon Elon Musk, um, you know, Sir Richard Branson, um, you know, guys like that that are not just not just changing uh, their lives, but they're changing other people's lives as well. This it's going to come a stage in everyone's life where they just want to give back. Right. So, and that's where, and that's where they are. And they're, they're striving for new things and, and they're, they're changing the way that people live, right. For the better. And that's, um, I think in the end, that's, that's, what's uh, that's one of the things that that's very important to me anyway. I, I listen to a motivational when I'm running or doing exercise, I have a motivational thing. A lot of it I consider crap, but I like the voices of the guys on it. You know, the American guys, uh, doing these, these 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 videos, so to, to me a lot it's the music and uh, the tone of the message that the guy's giving out. Not necessarily what he's saying. Sometimes it's rubbish, you know. So uh, we're all different. Yeah, mu music has a lot to do with it because you know people learn and people learn with three with three specific tools, right? Visual, yeah. right? Experiential, which is what squash is all about. We want to touch and feel, and we're tactile human beings. And that's part of the experience. And then the audio that, I mean, everyone, everyone can probably remember their, their favorite song, what got their juices flowing. Um, I remember when I won the Canadian junior championships, I was listening to, uh, to flash dance and, and right. chariots of fire and stuff like that. So, you know, today, today I, I used to, I used to have two or three different pump me up songs. I used to call this motivational songs. Um, in the summer to uh, when I was doing my training. Um, every summer I'd pick two or three songs and those would be my, my summer songs that would uh, wake me up. So I'd play those every, every time I went on the track or the bike or whatever. Uh, and nowadays you play or you don't play? Yeah, I'm still playing when the, right. when the courts are open. <laughs> right. Ours, ours opened I, up today, uh, first time. Oh, good. Well, I mean, I, I, I just play for fun now. I, I, my, my goal now is to, is to teach stuff about the mental training to, right. to the other coaches and players and, um, and give back. Can't take it with you. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, we, we have to go now. So we've gone way past 20 minutes. Okay, well. It's been about an hour, but we always talk long, so it's been a pleasure as usual. So thank you. Good, good luck. If anyone's interested in uh, Maxine's information, I'll we'll put it on the, the video video link. And if you're if you want to get somewhere, you have to work on the mental side, not just the physical side. So good luck, everyone. Thanks again, Maxime. Thanks, Connor. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm sure we'll meet up in Portugal with Luis. We, that might just happen. <laughs> yeah, we have to meet I would, up. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. That, that would be. Uh, <laughs> That would okay. be excellent. Looking All right, good to luck, huh? Stay safe. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks Connor. You Thanks. too. Cheers. Bye. Bye.